You're listening to The Caravan of Hope, promoting peace, safety, and well-being for every individual on earth. To change the way things are It's gonna take a lot of love We won't get And welcome back to The Caravan of Hope with me, Brent Caldwell. And me, Kovidomadik. And um, today we're going to be talking a wee bit about um, our episode six, which magically disappeared off our podcasting list. Um, so we'll cover the topics we talked about in that and also um, talk about uh, a, a YouTube clip that we've got on uh, about Roger Waters, amongst other things. But first of all, should basically tell folk where we are. Um, I'm currently on a rowing camp down at Taieri Mouth and um, just south of Dunedin in New Zealand, South Island. And um, I've had to drag Covido out of bed and bring him down to um, Taieri Mouth, um, where we can record this at the beautiful Taieri Mouth Motor Camp. So we're sitting um, in a lovely little cabin. Actually, I have to say I chose to come down because <laughs> it's such a nice drive. You drive yeah. along the beach for, I don't know, 15 kilometres or something beside the water, and um, I stopped on the way... Let my dog have a little run around, you know, and um, I was thinking they have a beach in Gaza, but I don't think anybody's been allowed to go to the beach. If you go to the beach, you probably get shot, imprisoned or yeah, something or other. So. Yeah, and I have to say, um, being out on the water with the kids this morning at seven on beautiful glass river here on the um, Taieri River, just, mm. yeah, it, 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 it did make, give me pause for thought about how lucky we are to be in this place and it did um, send my thoughts um, to those people who are um, living within the situation that they're in and the suffering that they're enduring after over a hundred days now. Yeah, and you know, it it should be their right, their right, they should be able to have their, you know, um, young, young adults going out, um, being able to row on the water, being able to take part in sports, mm -hmm. um, see their friends go down to the beach, that should be a basic ride, you know? Yeah. So today, uh, as I say, we're sitting in our cabin on this very squishy couch, so apologies for any ambient noise. You might hear the waves in the background as the wind is picking up. I don't know if we'll get back on the river again today, but um, we had a wee glitch with episode six where we talked about um, South Africa's court case at, at the international um, uh Court of Justice, and we talked about a book by Dale Keltner called Or, and we talked about the movie One Life, which um, detailed the exploits of Nicholas Winton, and um, it's a mea culpa on my part. I managed to fade out the, the main part of the podcast, but we'll maybe touch on, on those three things before we um, have a chat about the Roger Waters video that we okay. both looked at this week. Yeah. So South Africa and so, the International Court of Justice. Yeah, well, um, as you mentioned, South Africa has uh, put forward this case to the International Court of Justice, um, basically against Israel, um, accusing it of genocide and other crimes against humanity, including, you know, keeping humanitarian aid and... Um, yeah, just basically causing um, huge numbers of people to die. And I, I think, I'm not sure when I saw one time, there was about 49 other countries have 
have sided alongside Africa, South Africa, um, notably, you know, United States, England, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, haven't. You know, I'm, I don't know what's happened. I, I think we were talking about it, this, this dissonance between actually the people in the world and the governments. Mm. Um, you know, that actually most people would like to see this thing finish, see a ceasefire, you know. And Israel um, was um, extremely um, virulent in their response um, at the court. Um, and um, I understand, I'm, I'm sure I just saw on BBC news that um, South Africa is bringing another case. Yeah, against, I think against the USA and England for supporting Israel in its, its horrendous policy. Mm. And I guess, the, the, not the trouble, but one of the particular interesting things about any court case is um, coming down on what side of the definition that the court tends to read into the, the words that are used. And I'm just looking at the Convention on the Prevention of Punishment of Crimes and from the um, the United Nations, and it, again it says the definition contained in Article 2 of the Convention describes genocide as a crime committed with the intent to destroy a national, ethnic, racial or religious group in whole or in part. Mm. And I, I'm, I can't really understand how... Um, we could possibly say that's not what's happening when you yeah. consider the physical area of the location, the number of people within that area, and the total 100-day um, attack that is happening in that area. They have, they're still bombing day and night, and they've dropped more bombs on Gaza than I think they said were dropped in the Second World War or something. Good Lord. Okay. And, and there's nowhere for people to go, you know. I mean, the latest updates, I, I did go on a peace march this uh, last Saturday, and the figures then were, I think, about 23,000 people killed, yeah. including maybe 10,000 children, 7,000 women, and somewhere between 50 and 60,000 people wounded. Plus, because uh, Israel isn't allowing in enough aid uh, is controlling water and everything and um, people are in danger well one they're dying of disease because all the hospitals have been bombed um, and they don't have any power and two they're starting to die of starvation yeah um, I'm just looking at um, data here from the um, the child f fatalities um, and yeah, it's 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 looking pretty grim. Mm. Uh, we'll probably um, try and get some more definite figures on that before the end of the show. But um, coming back to my glitch on episode six, we 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 also talked about um, a book that you had read because um, that was about um, or or it's about or by a chap called Decker Keltner and. Um, I guess this was something that we were putting in because I know a lot of people when they get um, caught up or when they're involved in trying to do something about the, the situation that's happening in Israel and Gaza, they tend to get very depressed and um, burnt out. And um, 
Dacher Keltner was talking about how having a sense of awe for something um, not only makes you feel better, but it also makes you feel more connected with other people mm. and refreshes you. And he was um, also referencing um, the woman uh, whose name I've completely forgotten now, mm-hmm. um, who wrote about the, the books The Silent Spring in the 1960s and she was saying that you know if we're fighting for justice one of the ways of of renewing our energy is um going into nature actually yeah that was the book by um rachel carson yeah yeah okay um just while you were doing that i did a a, a very quick check on the latest death toll in gaza and as of um yesterday there were 24,285 people killed Right. 62,000 people wounded. Yeah. Um, and I guess when you put those two figures together, you get around the 85, 86,000 right. people's lives affected. And that's out of 2.3 million people who live there. Yeah. And uh, the death toll from um, the Hamas attack in Israel on October the 7th is um, standing at 1,139. Mm. Um, and again, um, you know, we shake our head and say, you know, that the disproportionate response is um, probably what's fueling a lot of those actions in the International Court of Justice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just seeing, you know, if they were actually attacking, you know, if the Israeli forces were attacking and killing uh, Hamas fighters, perhaps there wouldn't be the outrage, but. You know, when it's mainly children and women that are being killed, um, it's appalling, you know. Some, something's gone wrong. Something's gone very wrong. And I know that we talked about um, that in our... I think it was one of our first episodes, we talked about that idea of um, the lovely language that's used to describe the collateral damage. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, when you look at a news story here in New Zealand and, you know, if I, if I take, um, say, some of the fatalities over the Christmas period and the, the sombre way in which they're reported, you know, if you think there was a, um, there's been drownings or there's been, um, you mm. know, um, uh, quad bike accidents where children have passed away, you know, the, mm. the media have been, you know, very empathetic and sympathetic and, and, and the, the reportage over that. Yeah. We're um, talking 25,000 lives lost. Yeah, 10,000 children. Yeah. And I have to say, at this point last night, I was watching the, the program, it was Al Jazeera, and I saw this queue of um, mainly young boys, probably, I don't know, 8, 12 years old, something like that, I'm mm. not quite sure how old they were, in a queue trying to get some food, which was being doled out by somebody, probably United Nations. Mm. Um, and I thought, I thought, you know, in any other situation in the world where you have TV cameras... These boys, particularly young boys, would be there trying to get into the photo, yeah, yeah. you know, doing little tricks yeah, yeah. so that they get photographs taken. And these boys were just standing there and their eyes were kind of glazed over. And I guess you just have to be, be numb because when you go out, you go out to go and get some food. One, you don't know if you're going to get food because there might not be enough. Mm. And two, you don't know when you go back, actually, will my parents, my family still be alive? Because... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are now 1.9 million displaced people in Gaza. Mm-hmm. That's like 
75, 80% of the population. And they've all been told to go to these safe places, which are refugee camps or schools or hospitals. And then the Israeli Defence Forces bomb those or mm. go in and shoot people. So it's like there's nowhere to be safe. Like that sense of, it must be terrible that you just, there's nowhere you can go that's actually safe. Yeah. And if you think of the sort of the, the trauma that that is going to um, leave people with, it's... Um, yeah, it's it's extremely it's it's just extremely distressing. Um, we also talked in episode six about six about um, the um, British stockbroker Nicholas Winton, who um, during World War Two um, went or in, in in the lead up to World War Two um, went to um, Czechoslovakia and assisted greatly in um, the saving of um, children's lives. And I think we dwelt on that because mm. we wanted to demonstrate the fact that, you know, all through human history, there are these tales of people doing what humans do best, caring and looking after one another. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've seen the film? I've seen the film too, yeah. And I um, went with my wife um, last weekend. Um, and, yeah, you want to talk it's- about your reflections on that? Yeah, I thought it was a wonderful film because here he was, he was kind of a stockbroker just going over to help initially with refugees because at that time uh, Germany, I think, had just invaded Czechoslovakia, taken the Sudetenland, they called it. Yes. And so there were, there were refugees and, and that was a kind of, still life was fairly normal, but then suddenly they came, I think they were coming towards Prague Mm. Uh, I presume it was in Prague, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Prague. Um, you know, and then uh, Nicholas Winton, who's a stockbroker, was kind of wandering around. And he saw all these children, you know, in really dire situations, um, refugee children, and said, "You know, we have to try and get them out." And um, so he was working with the organisations there, but he also had his mother, who, curiously enough, was a. Um, second-generation Jewish refugee living in England. So um, she'd she'd always encouraged him to... I um, can't remember the phrase she said, to, uh, to look after other people, mm. care for other people, mm. I think. Mm. And at one point, you know, the people were saying... And, and so he got her to go to the British Embassy, the Immigration Department, and um, said, you know, we've got these children... And, and then the immigration department said, well, you need to have a, a, a report, a photograph. You need to have uh, people who are willing to take them and they have to put forward £50 pounds money, which was probably about a year's wages for the average person in those days. Yeah. And, you know, all the staff said, well, this is impossible. And he said, well, you know, somebody's got to do it. Yeah. And uh, there was this interesting point where he suddenly said, you know, it's actually ordinary people. We're ordinary people, and ordinary people can do things if they band together. Mm. And they did, amazingly. They, they got, you know, um, 800 people who were willing to be foster parents, the £50. Pounds. They got the medical reports. They got the photos. And if I remember correctly, I think £50 pounds back in 1938, 39 is the equivalent of um, $3,500 now. I think it would be worth actually a lot more than that, but I'm not sure what the average wage was then. But if you consider, you know, that it was um, sort of the tail end of the Depression, to find numbers of people who would be prepared to undertake that. Mm. And I guess the 
the the ringing similarities with our current period is you know there are countries who are closing their borders and saying no more refugees we're not having any mm. um, and you know I think in an early episode we talked about Angela Merkel's leadership and and opening the borders of Germany to um, take Syrian refugees yeah um, by the same token you've got um, presidential candidates or presidential um, nominee seekers such as Mr Trump saying they're going to absolutely close the borders in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Um, Did you have any thoughts about the film? Yeah, I I thought it was lovely. Um, I I was familiar with the story having seen it um, on YouTube um, from the actual episode of That's Life with Esther Ranson. Mm. um, But it was lovely to see how the, the makers of the program weren't just satisfied with um, linking him up with someone that he had previously, you know, um, put him in connection with, but they called him back. And then they talked about uh, and got all those people in the studio to stand up. That That is an amazing oh. moment. And, yeah, it really hits home. I was in tears. And then you consider what, what's the, what's the um, impact of that over time. And I think at the time that the film was made, there's probably something like 6,000 people alive today who are alive today because mm. of those 600 children who got out because of Nicholas Winton and the other people he worked with yeah. who, um, you know, who really bent over backwards to make that happen. They did, and, and you know, um, some of the Czech workers, we saw them just being taken off by the Gestapo, so we don't know what happened with them. Yeah, yeah. And it reminded me of that um, um, that uh, that saying about, you know, the, the, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing, yeah. which is attributed to, well, it was falsely attributed to Edmund um, Burke, but it's a, it's a lovely expression because, you know, um, even here in New Zealand, <clears throat> standing by and maybe turning off the news or changing channel and not going on a peace march or, or not taking some action not could be... Not your MPs. Yeah. Because could, they, they actually still, they're supposed to actually, you know, represent us, so... If enough people write to them, maybe they will. Yeah, and we're kind of complicit uh, mm. in that. Mm. So much so that I did a cartoon last week. Uh, um, I was absolutely struck that our government came out so strongly to send um, the New Zealand Navy um, uh, in defence of the Red Sea shipping lanes. Um, almost immediately it was worked out that our um, Belgian chocolates wouldn't get here in time for Easter. It's appalling, isn't it? And yet um, we still have not made an official call for a ceasefire yet. No, that's terrible, isn't it? And it just kind of tells you um, what's happening in in the world currently. So, um, and I know I've got a friend um, on Instagram, uh, Libby Kasky, who, who has a page called Libby Does Art, and she's putting up um, things, much as the same thing too. And I might share some of those images on our Facebook page um, if you can, um, if you want to go and find those and have a look at those. Mm. So I guess that probably leads us quite neatly into... Um, the, I was just thinking the next thing we should say is the... We also did an interview with your friend Abram. Oh, Abram Stern. Yes, that was last week's episode. And I called it Episode 7, Part 1. Now, the reason for that was because we were recording on Zoom 
and um, because I wasn't using the paid version, I ran out of time and we, Abram decided he would record from his end because he had a, a, a professional account, but mm. I think it was so late at night in Jerusalem for him, I think he just shut the lid of his laptop and went to bed because it was Shabbat coming on for him and he had to observe that. So um, we do intend to go back and, um, and, and have another chat to him. Yeah, and and I do sort of want to say that sometimes we do forget actually that yes, one one thirteen hundred Israelis got killed by Hamas, which was horrendous, and I don't know how many people were injured, and there are still people whose family are, are still hostage, or they presume they're hostage. They may be dead because where are they going to keep them anywhere safe in in Gaza? And so you know. A lot of the Israeli population are, are totally against this this war, but um, unfortunately, the the government, the Netanyahu government, is uh, merciless. I don't know, I don't know what to describe them really. Yeah, and I think um, the the other thing is, you know, when we started this podcast, we said we're not a political podcast. We're just two human beings mm. who um, are wanting to talk about a humanitarian crisis. We're, yeah. we're not coming down on either side. Obviously, Israel's garnering a lot of the um, headlines about aggression because of the sheer number and the, and the response. But we are in no way mitigating what happened on October the 7th in, in any way. And as Abram spoke to me um, the night before our actual recording, you know, his neighbour's um, son was shot and killed at the rock yeah. concert. Yeah. And um, the people across the road um, had their um, their auntie um, abducted and it looks like um, she is now deceased. So um, there's yeah. people hurting on, on both sides of this conflict. Um, yes. I mean, that is an absolute fact. Yeah. So we hope to go back to Abram and follow up on, because um, he was about to comment about the BBC's coverage and reporting what they see. Yeah. And I thought that was a good point. Um, so Roger Waters was on Turkish television. I'm not sure why he was on Turkish television, but anyhow, he was on it. Um, and yes, this interview um, really struck me um, for a couple of reasons. But the the main thing to start off was he told a story about his his father. Or well, maybe what we should say is I don't know. If we should say the bit about how he got involved with the Palestine Israel question. Okay, and for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the name, Roger Waters is um, a former member of the seminal um, band Pink Floyd, um, Dark Side of the Moon, The Wall, um, and um, he uh, was interviewed by Turkish television about um, his um, support and his um, speaking out on the situation for Palestinians in Palestine, and he talked about how all that came about. And, Which, if, and if I'm right, he the, he had a four-day window in his tour itinerary back in 2006, and um, he it was three, but I'm not sure. He was scheduled to um, do a concert in Israel, and then a lot of people from um, North Africa started emailing him and saying, "Well, you know, come on, um, th- that would be seen to be um, supporting um, a regime that is." Um, not treating um, the Palestinian people particularly fairly, so he relocated to a farm where Israeli, Palestinian, Arab, 
and um, Jewish and Christian and um, Druze people all lived in a community together growing chickpeas. And he got 60,000 people at that concert, probably the largest concert Israel had ever seen at that time. And then, but he did talk about um, how people were shouting and calling out his name, but as soon as he said that... um, it was the responsibility of everyone to to, to um, work for peace. You know, the, the, with their neighbours. With their neighbours, the, the atmosphere in the in the um, in the stadium changed, um, and he said people's faces just really dropped. And then I think the next year he went back and actually visited Palestine. Yes, and he was so um, shocked by the way he was treated. He said, "I had a British passport. How badly would the Palestinians be treated?" And he saw how they lived and what happened to them. He was just deeply shocked. So he's he's kind of been supporting them ever since. And in the course of that interview, this was something that I was completely unaware of, yeah. but he talked about his own father who was killed in Italy um, at Monte Cassino, uh-huh, um, yeah. which, which is a battlefield that is well known to um, New Zealand um, service people, particularly the Māori Battalion. But um, he, he said that his father was conscripted for the war. Yeah. And um, But he was a conscientious yes. objector. And they said, well, will you drive an ambulance? And he yeah. said yes. Yeah. And then in 1940 or so... 41 or 2, I think. Yeah, he... He, his father um, had, had seen that... Um, he joined the Communist Party. Yes, yes. He became quite politicised. Yeah. And he worked out that in order to um, maybe sort of create a world where there was going to be equity and um, peace for all, he would have to take up arms against yeah. um, the Nazi aggressors. So he, um, because he had a degree, he was trained as an officer and was deployed to Italy where he subsequently died. And on the internet there's a lovely photo of um, Roger Waters in his mother's arms, aged um, five months old, and his older brother there, and his father coming home from leave from officer training. So he talked a wee bit about that. He did, yeah. And then and then he said this wonderful story, you know, um, about his mother. And I can't remember what the original question was, but something... What was happening was Roger was working on some schoolwork yeah. and he was having a bit of a struggle and, he, and, and she looked over and said to him, what's the matter? Yeah. And he said, I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a real tricky problem here. Yeah. And she just basically put down whatever she was doing and she said to him, you know, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that's going to stand you in good stead in your life. Yeah. And it is to read, read, Read and then read, read some, more. some more, and don't just read the the things that agree with what you think. Read across the spectrum of opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, read what um, the 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 opposite side of the argument is saying, and then all the hard work will be done. Yeah. And um, he said. Yeah. As a result of that, he got such a lot. I think he was aged about fifteen, and, and, then, and then he said, and then he said, and then what do I do? And she said, well, the hard work's already done. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Yeah. And he said, wouldn't that be a fantastic thing if we taught that to everybody in schools, all the kids in schools? Yeah. Just that. Mm. Do the right thing. Because, you know, you look at what's happening in Palestine and the right thing's to stop what's happening. You know, why can't we do that? 
Now, an interesting point that he made, and he, he was at pains to really not talk about it too much mm. because it becomes a bit of a sideshow, but he did talk about how um, there are stories that keep being refloated about mm. him being an anti-Semite. Yeah. What can you tell me about that? Well, the stories are floated, I think, because on some of his concerts, he, he has a huge floating pig, um, and... This was taken to be anti-Israel, but as you were telling me, uh, the pig has been a symbol for Pink Floyd and Roger Waters since... Since way back in the day. I think it even predates um, the wall, right. um, which was around 1980. And, um, and the pig was a symbol not of anything against anti-Semitism, but actually comes from Animal Farm, where... Um, the pigs were the people who, the pigs were the creatures that were more equal than others who actually took control. So, so the flying pigs were one of the staple props of their live shows. And in fact, I think the first balloon was a sow with a male pig balloon um, being introduced in 1987. So the pigs have appeared numerous times in their concerts by the band, and they um, and they use it to promote concerts and record releases. Um, and uh, Roger Waters actually has the rights for that, um, which were passed to him when he split from the rest of the group. And of course, the the the, the pig featured on the cover of their 1977 album, okay. Animals. So it was already there way before he got interested. Way, in way, way there. And also, you know, people say, well, it's anti-Semitic. But yeah. if you're pro-Palestinian, Muslims also have the same feelings about pigs and eating pigs, so it would it wouldn't it doesn't that doesn't even make sense. And very often, what he does is he puts symbols up there. So I think at one time he was criticised because there was the Star of David there. Mm-hmm. But I think he, what he does is puts up symbols that um, symbolise the authoritarian governments, people who are misusing power. So when, for instance, they were in Argentina, they put up something that showed the 30,000 people who disappeared under the Argentinian government. Yeah. And probably when it was in, I don't know if this was in Israel, he may have had the Star of David showing something, which is the flag also of Israel. um, At Summerfest in 2006, the pig had the message printed on it, impeach Bush. Right. You know, so yes, it is used as a a kind of a... um, um, a a kind of a a way to... um, push something that needs um, attention drawn to it and in fact um, the, it, it, it always has there's always a wee speech given before it appears and depending on you know what the, the, the story or the, the, the cause of the day is it can be done there the other thing I wanted to draw attention to was some of those stories um, talk about him being an anti-Semite and then they show pictures of him with a machine gun shooting and in but, a kind of like it looks like a Nazi costume, but well, what it, you pointed it, out was yeah, yeah, it's a it's a fascist costume, um, and it and it's a direct. Um, well, I believe it to be a direct costume link to um, Pink Floyd, The Wall. If you yeah. if you've seen the film, you know that the emblem are marching hammers, right, and that's what's on his armband. 
um, but you know, I, I can see how, from an icon- iconography and semiotic point of view, yeah. that is exactly the message about um, fascism. And in Pink Floyd, The Wall, that is exactly what's going on. He's talking about fascism and the abuse of power. Well, yeah. Um, and he, when, when he's showing in the, the start of the wall, they they show pictures of the war. And this is actually a song about his father, about their, you know, how his father actually radioed. They said, you know, go and attack this place. He said, so many people are going to get killed. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. Just go ahead anyway. And mm. he also got killed, mm. you know. And it was kind of that complete insanity of war where, where you know, soldiers, like you see the soldiers in uh, the Israeli forces, they're disposable, you know. Yeah. They send them out. There's... Since October the 7th, actually has only been, I think there's about four or 500 soldiers killed and no civilians. Like, you know, Israel are saying, we're defending. Well, you've defended. There hasn't been a single actual civilian killed. So mm. you've actually defended. You don't go need to kill 23,000 people, 10,000 children. Now, the interesting thing was um, in the course of this video and... Um, he talked about the fact that he is now aged 80. Yeah. And at aged 79, he re-recorded or did a redux version of Dark Side of the Moon, which he said he recorded when he was 29. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? it? Yeah, it is. And his his daughter had said to him, you know, look at this. You're standing at this end of the continuum of your life and you're looking back at what 29-year-old you had to say. Yeah. And um, I think the purpose of that was um, when he, he, Waters actually wrote that we're so young when we made the original one. When you look at the world around us, clearly the messages of the album haven't stuck. And um, he talks about, um, you know, um, time, money, um, breathe and all those songs. And um, he says they're as relevant today as they were then. Yeah. But... He was at pains to say that even after 50 years, people don't get the message of the album. Yeah. And that it's about, um, it's not about um, being a consumer. It's about once your basic needs are met, what's the thing that human beings should do? They should care for people. Yeah. And that's all there is. And I think there are some lyrics in one of the songs that says, all that you can see, all that you can do, that's all there is. Yeah. Um, I wish I knew the song a wee bit better than that. Uh, um, but. Um, that's something I'm certainly going to go. I'm going to go back and have another listen. Well, I have a listen to the Redux version. Yeah. I know the original because my older brothers and sisters used to play it relentlessly. <laughs> <laughs> that's the trouble about being the youngest in the family. You get your musical tastes from your seven older siblings, and um, some of it was pretty eclectic. I got the Beatles and the Beach Boys. Yeah, well, I was told that my first words were John, Paul, George and Ringo because my sister Elizabeth was a mad Beatles fan. She was a teenager at that time. So, um, yeah, Roger Waters, uh, um, a really interesting video uh, which we'll post on our Facebook page. Um, and we're not promoting anyone's particular views. We're just, I guess, in the process of trying to put things in front of you that you may not have seen and that you may not actually see in mainstream media. Mm. Speaking of which... That was a point that he made, wasn't it? That today's media yeah. is it, an echo chamber for the, the, the holders of power. Yeah, because I, th- I think you see, you know, the other day I met somebody who actually comes from Egypt and she said, well, 
the Egyptian president is in favour of Zionism, which seemed amazing to me. But she said 95% of the Egyptians aren't. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, if you talk to people anywhere in the world, like in England or here, you know, they're, they're all totally against what's happening. You know, yeah. it needs to stop. And if you look at... Um, the politicians do nothing, and it's like, well, what is it? What actually motivates them? Is it power? Is it greed? Is it fear? Is it all of those things? And you have to look at how the news is curated yeah. around what those people think. And if you think of, you know, the names that come to mind when you think of, um, you know, media magnates are the likes of Rupert Murdoch and Michael Bloomberg, Jeff Bezos um, and the Barclay brothers. And... If you think of which I don't side, know who of, the Berkeley brothers are? Well, let me just tell you, um, they are um, the UK's f uh, foremost um, media titans, really. Okay. And if you think around which side of the coin they're going to come down on in terms of politics, um, you you might be forgiven for thinking, well, they're certainly going to do whatever protects their interests. Yeah. And um, I can't imagine that olive growers in Palestine would be um, among their biggest concerns at the moment. No. And, and, you know, it is that thing of how much do we need? You know, I see these people, and we seem to have idolised them, the people who are billionaires or multi-billionaires, you know, and yeah. it's like, but that, what, what is it? What, why do you have to make another billion? Like... Why can't you actually pay proper wages to the people who actually work for you and have made you rich? And it's interesting because um, last night I was uh, listening to a um, uh, a podcast from the um, the Be Here Now Network. Uh, oh, it was actually the Insight Hour podcast, and there was a lovely discussion around um, emptiness. Oh, yeah. And in um, Buddhist circles around, um, uh, they were saying, once you have your needs met, what, what's the thing that you need to be doing? And, you know, once your shelter, your food, um, all those types of things are taken care of, and, and it's care. Mm. Care for yourself and care for others. And that's what makes you happy. It's not actually you see. You know, we can see from these people, like a lot of the people who made money, a lot of the pop stars, miserable absolutely miserable lives addicted to drugs having a terrible time yeah they're the people we hold up you know and it's like we should be actually holding up people like nicholas winton mm. people who who do good things mm. i mean this morning i was just listening to the radio and i think it's called fair food um is an organization that's just provided their five millionth meal from uh recycled food food that would have gone to waste wow. you know which again is is stupid because New Zealand, we produce so much food. I think eighty percent of our food is exported. We have more than enough food to feed everybody, and yet we have to give people food. You know, but at the same time, what I wanted to say is there are people doing good things who are caring all over the world. You know. Yeah, yeah, and I I think the the, the thing is that. Um, Something that always occurs to me is when you hold someone up as a paragon of humanity, mm. someone says, oh, but they were, you know, that there's always some but that they try to get in, you know. Um, and I think we have to recognise that a lot of these people who do great things aren't perfect human beings. No, in fact, don't. there is no perfect human being. No, they 
and uh, you know and we've all we've all got that potential i think we've all got the potential you know if if i was born in israel and um you know i was born and i was like 19 now um and i've been uh, subjected to the propaganda that israel has about palestinians I would, I would be thinking, oh gosh, these are animals, and they're going to try and destroy us. They're going to get rid of us all. I have to go and kill them, and you know, whatever I did would be okay. Um, you know, and I can't say that I would be different. You know, if if I was one of those, if I was there, you know, I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, in in Israel who are who are very caring people who've been trying to work for peace and, mm. and equality. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing I just wanted to say was that article you sent me, which um, was about the United Nations. Oh, that was in the ODT recently? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that one, what was interesting, he was saying something I thought myself is that the where I said the United Nations needs a reboot. And he said, well, you look at the United Nations and... Over the past, I think it was the 70 years, there have been 50 resolutions made by the United Nations against Israel. Yeah. And, you know, like, the United Nations doesn't make a resolution unless something fairly major has happened. Yeah. And it can be either Israel went in and killed 200 or 1,000 or 20,000 people, which they have done, or they've taken territory which is not meant to be theirs, or they've tortured people. I don't know what it was, but 50 resolutions. And... Every resolution was vetoed by the United States. So mm. he was saying, we have to get rid of this veto thing and if have it instead, if two-thirds of the United Nations actually vote for resolution, it should be passed, which is, yeah. that makes sense. Because what we have is the aggressors <clears throat> basically veto what's happening. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it says that, and the article is by a chap called um, Robert G. Patman, who is the inaugural sesquicentennial distinguished chair and a specialist in international relations at the University of Otago. Okay. So maybe we could see if he wants to come and have a chat to us about that. But he was saying that, you know, 80 years on from the, um, the start of the UN, it's clear that the great powers can't run today's world. Um, because many of the challenges facing states in security, health, environmental, economic spheres do not respect borders. Mm. You know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, we did not have economic refugees. We certainly didn't have environmental refugees. No. And that stuff is only going to amp up. And so, um, you know... He says that the situation in Gaza just confirms that the use of the veto is largely incompatible with um, maintaining international peace and security, yeah. which, you know, was one of the reasons you wanted to bring this to people's attention. So, yeah, maybe we should give Robert a, a call and see if he wants to come and have a wee chat about what he thinks. We could do that. That'd be a good idea. So um, that probably about wraps it up for us today um, here down at the Taieri Mouth um, Motor Camp. Um, where it's a beautiful, beautiful day here in, beautiful day. in Otago. Yeah. Um, and just to say, well, this, this next Saturday there'll be another march in Otipoti, Dunedin, at 2 o'clock at the museum. Um, there'll be marches all around the country, and I believe there were marches in 39 different countries around the world. And, I mean, some of them are like there are hundreds of thousands or if not millions of people. Yeah. Um, 
and to keep on talking about talking about Gaza. I noticed myself I've kind of done less talking about it. It's sort of fading into the background. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, and, you know, to do things, to petition your MPs, to petition other people. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, it's still continuing, um, unfortunately. So we've still got to take action. You know, um, I'm just looking at Al Jazeera saying that, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of people worldwide getting out off their couches and just marching in the streets of their cities. Malaysia, South Africa, United Kingdom, Indonesia, Thailand, Japan, Italy, Greece, Pakistan. Come on, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Let's get out there and, and, and show our support for our fellow human beings. Yeah, because, I mean, we were, you know, talking about South Africa, which has um, put itself forward because I think it has a history of being an apartheid nation. Um, and so it knows what it was like. And, you know, New Zealand was instrumental in actually ending apartheid in South Africa because of its... Um, uh, it's resistance. No, what's the word? It's it's opposition to sporting ties. Opposition and to the the Springboks tour. Yeah. I mean that you know I think Desmond Tutu said that was one of the major things that turned the tide. And the and the other thing was you know New Zealand came late to that game. Mm. We often forget that. You know the 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 um, the Commonwealth Games and and the. Um, uh, you know, John Walker's 1,500-metre win at the Commonwealth Games in, in, in Christchurch or at, in the Munich Games, mm. you know, a lot of African athletes weren't there because of New Zealand's stance. It's not like we've got a perfect record of standing right. up for things. But I but guess the lesson that history has taught us is it's never too late to stand up and it's never too... Even the smallest of actions can make a difference. Yeah. Even podcasts. Yeah, that's right. Let's hope so. Okay, well, um, thanks for listening, and um, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, we have a website, uh, which we're doing our best to make a wee bit easier for you to access. But uh, from me, Brent Caldwell, may you be well, may you be happy, may you live with ease. And may you live in peace. May we all live in peace. You've been listening to The Caravan of Hope, promoting peace, safety, and well-being for every human being on earth.